This story begins with the Saffron Revolution. This revolution took place in 2007 when the military government abolished fuel subsidies, causing fuel prices to skyrocket. As a result, the inflation caused people to suffer greatly, leading to demonstrations demanding the release of the leader Aung San Suu Kyi and other political prisoners. When the military government realized the unfavorable situation, they used force to suppress the people. Thank you for joining us for the next hour or two in this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast. In an age of nearly limitless content, we appreciate that you're choosing to take valuable time out of your day to learn more about what is happening in Myanmar. It is vital for this story to continue to be heard by people around the world. And that starts right now with you. My guest today is Stephen, who's going to be talking to us about a topic that is both incredibly important and chronically overlooked, and that is the role of workers, laborers, and labor unions in Myanmar, both in the current context and in a historical context. And I, I have slight trepidation. This is a topic that I'm not familiar with, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, to being educated on this topic. So, Stephen, could you? Uh, briefly introduce yourself for the listeners and um, give us give us a bit of a history of labor movements uh, in Myanmar over, say, the last century. Okay. Well, first, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Stephen Campbell. I'm an assistant professor at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. I've been doing research on labor issues in Myanmar and among Myanmar migrant workers in Thailand and Singapore for about 12 or so years now. Um, so in that research, I've been involved in looking at the current conditions of workers, but I've also looked at the history of the labor movement in Myanmar. So most of the Burmese language uh, histories of labor in Myanmar identify the, the years just following World War I as the emergence of the first identifiable uh, collective actions by wage workers. And this was mostly on the oil fields in 
Mugwe region, what we now call Mugwe region. And so this was the, the start of the identifiable labor, identifiable labor movement when unions first emerged in the 20s and the British colonial government in response introduced labor laws to, to contain this. And this labor movement on the oil fields really reached its peak in 1938 when there was a huge and very politically significant worker strike on the oil fields that uh, erupted involving over 10,000 workers and it involved a march of workers to Yangon. Uh, in the end, the, the strike wasn't successful, but it was significant politically because it really catalyzed uh, much of the other uh, anti-colonial struggles at that time, including student strikes and peasant uprisings. And so a lot of workers today often look back on that, that moment, 1938, and one of the key organizers, the Ken Polachi, as quite pivotal and um, central to sort of the, the history of the labor movement in Myanmar. Now, after World War II, there was a flourishing of labor movements, or labor unions and federations that were often associated with different political parties, but with the, the Communist Party or with the Socialist Party, as well as some that were independent. But when the military coup happened in 1962, these unions were e effectively rendered unlawful, and the military government and the newly established Burma Socialist Program Party replaced the space of unions with these uh, official industrial dispute tribunals. So these were restrictive in the sense that workers weren't able to form their own unions, but there was nonetheless a certain kind of space in which workers could take grievances to these tribunals. And given the, the ideology of the socialist period, there was a sense, and I've talked to some older workers who were uh, working, as particularly construction workers, who were working as construction workers in the socialist period. And they, they say that likely if the employer was a private employer, then the workers would often win their disputes. However, if the employer was a government or office, then the employers often lost their, their disputes during the socialist period. So it was a bit... Um, a bit ambivalent that this this process. So and there were certain ways in which it, it did strengthen the position of workers relatively, but then in 1988 things seriously changed. There was a big uprising of workers. In of course, many people are familiar with the 1988 popular uprising, but within that uprising, a really important component of it were workplace uh, informal unions that were established very quickly at workplaces around the country. And these were organized by the workers themselves and often coordinated with other people involved in the uprising. And many really important uh, labor organizers were, were involved in this. But of course, with the repression that followed the 1988 uprising, many of the labor activists were arrested and the unions that had been formed informally during the uprising had to go underground or dissolve. So after that, there was a lot of underground activism of the labor activists who are committed to both the democracy movement, but still uh, more explicitly focused on the, the labor movement and organizing workers. So that continued under the really repressive uh, SLORC and then SPDC governments. But then, of course, with the, the shift with the new constitution in 2008, 
And with the shift to quasi-civilian rule following the November 2010 elections, there was a push to increase the legal space for workers to organize. So this was in part because the new administration wanted to attract investment by Western uh, corporations, and particularly in the garment sector, Western brands. And so the the Thein government, following the inauguration of Thein and the USDP government in 2011, worked closely with the International Labor Organization and brought out two important laws. So the first was in 2011. This was the uh, labor organization law, which gave workers the right to form unions. And then in 2012, the labor dispute uh, resolution law, which allowed for uh, tripartite collective bargaining by workers, whether workers inside a union or workers uh, without a formal union. So these two new laws radically changed the space for organizing for workers compared to the pre the, the period from 1988 to 2010. So a lot of workers after the 2011 and 2012 labor laws were introduced really took the opportunity to, to organize their workplaces and to really push for improvements in, of course, wages, but also other areas of working conditions because the, the situation was very deplorable. Not only were wages really low, but working hours were extremely long and often management was able to rule very arbitrarily in the workplace. So over the next decade of the what's often identified as the, the democratic transition or often called the democratic transition, there was a flurry of worker organizing and such that within the space of about a decade and just up to the, the months preceding the coup, there were close to 3,000 registered workplace unions in the country. Now, some of these uh, may have formed and registered with the government and subsequently dissolved or fallen apart. But nonetheless, on the books, there was just slightly under 3,000 registered workplace unions. So it's quite a significant growth of unions uh, in the country over that 10-year period. And it really speaks to the energy and the commitment and the determination of the workers. But nonetheless, in that, that period, there was also a lot of barriers and challenges. So the many of the workers found, the workers that I spoke to doing research in the industrial zones around Yangon, often felt that the township conciliation bodies, which were the ones responsible for arbitrating the initial dispute resolution between workers and employers. So a lot of the workers that I've spoken with have often felt that these bodies were biased on the sides of employers and that the labor law inspections department wouldn't visit factories to actually inspect working conditions. So although there were new laws that legalized the space for workers to organize, and there were also new workplace uh, health and safety laws, for example, and there was a minimum wage law that was introduced during that 10 years before the coup. Nonetheless, in practice, many, many workplaces across the country remained effectively outside of the official labor legislation, simply because the labor laws were not being effectively enforced. So it would be quite common with people in various sectors, in, in service, in manufacturing, in, of course, uh, resource extraction, that the 
wages and working conditions that they experienced were radically different than what on paper they would be uh, eligible to receive under the new labor legislation. So this was an ongoing struggle during these, the 10 years of the so-called transition between workers who were pushing to not only organize unions, but also push to have their workplaces in compliance with the law. And this is really, I think, an important point because the a lot of the organizing that happened, the workers were not initially making demands for anything more than they were already legally due. So the workers were pushing to get the our township conciliation bodies or the regional or state level arbitration bodies to in, simply enforce the existing law. And, um, but nonetheless, on the most part, uh, a lot of the, the workplaces were, were in violation. So that's kind of a, a, a broad brush history of the labor movement. And I'd be happy to go into more specific detail on any of the, on any of the issues if you want to ask more specifically. I mean, absolutely. I, I want to thank you for that. That was a very uh, comprehensive overview uh, of, of the history. But I want to sort of make sure that I get my bearings uh, on on some of these concepts. And, and I'm going to move away from the Myanmar context first. What I want to ask you really is, what are the differences in the role that unions have within the culture? How are they perceived? In the West, unions have very often been perceived as the sort of the, the working man's struggle. It's they're very often associated, especially in the modern era, with left-wing movements, um, especially behind the Iron Curtain. Unions were ubiquitous, but they were controlled by the state, realistically. And so unions are perceived in very specific ways in the West. Is the perception similar in Myanmar with regard to unions, or is there a different culture? Um, great question. So Definitely during the, the so-called socialist period, the, the government was very uh, assertive in trying to control the workers' movement. On the one hand, it granted substantial benefits to workers. Workers who were in um, waged employment were often had access to various kinds of uh, labor law and, and workplace benefits. And this isn't necessarily because the, the Burma Socialist Program Party was in fact committed to socialist ideals. In fact, a lot of scholars uh, argue that the, the Burma Socialist Program Party wasn't in fact committed to socialist ideals. But nonetheless, at the time it took power, there was a significant workers' movement and leftist ideas were very legitimate, um, proceed with a lot of wide, had a lot of widespread support, whether these were seen as socialist or communist. Um, the historian Robert, Robert Taylor has this, this statement that I often cite, which is uh, that following uh, independence in 1948, nearly every articulate nationalist politician in the country claimed to be a socialist, Marxist, or communist. So this was the, the ideological and political context of the early years after independence. Uh, whether people were on the communist side or on the socialist side, nonetheless, it was a leftist government facing leftist opposition. There was very little space in which there was a, that right-wing politics grant had a lot of traction. Um, and during the socialist period, the official ideology was that workers and peasants were pivotal to the country's prosperity. And so this actually did lead to certain tangible benefits to workers and to peasants. 
Um, but the aid got increasingly restrictive as time went by, and definitely the, the government didn't, in fact, adhere to this. Um, there were quite violent repressions of workers in 1974, um, but nonetheless, ideologically, this was the case. Now, after 88, this situation radically changed and workers, uh, space for worker organizing was uh, eviscerated. And ideologically, the, the ideology of the ruling junta shifted from a social compact between the government and workers and peasants to one where the government was, um, which often called its... Uh, a system of crony capitalism, where the government, the, the military junta, aligned itself with an emerging capitalist class that emerged as the military sold off state assets, um, often to themselves or to their family members. So the period after 1988 was one in which the labor movement uh, was in the official discourse, official ideology of the military junta was delegitimized and it effectively erased. However, there continued to be many people, many activists, and many people in the democracy movement who had, of course, historical memory or connections to the earlier leftist politics of Myanmar, which were incredibly important and formative for the country. So I've spoken with people, uh, older people, older, older labor activists who were um, also working and organizing during in the years before 88. And they still have a lot of respect for a lot of these the leftist uh, activists, not necessarily the formal leftif leftist activists in, for example, the Burma Socialist Program Party, which is uh, very much discredited and very few people look at it at that party favorably, but instead the leftist activists who are more independent, often writers and journalists and public intellectuals, some really important figures that I look up to, uh, such as Bamotin Ong, um, who was a really important leftist int public intellectual who wrote novels and edited a newspaper and magazine and wrote books about the labor movement. And these, these books about uh, workers' struggles and about peasant struggles and leftist politics continued to be read by uh, activists in Myanmar. And so there is this undercurrent of the sense of legitimacy of the workers' movement and workers' struggles and a leftist peasant politics that officially, on the surface, when people go to, to Myanmar, often this is not what comes across, because, of course, in the official uh, politics, the kind of prominent politics that people saw, that foreigners saw when they went to Myanmar after 2010, was very much a sort of standard neoliberal politics um, that downplayed the significant of, significance of workers' movements. But nonetheless, a lot of the activists that I've talked to still look back um, on the influence of the leftist the 20th century leftist movement as an important uh, part of their own heritage. So it's a, uh, it leads to a contradictory situation where people often look at the Burma Socialist Program Party as a very discredited political party and, and as representing a politics that nobody wants to go back to. But at the same time, there is a sense that there is a, a leftist politics and a, a history of leftist politics in Myanmar that is very important and venerable and worthy of returning to and remembering and rethinking for its relevance in the present. So there are labor activists in Myanmar that were up until the coup, um, and there were when I was doing my research in the industrial zones around Yangon, around Yangon in 2019, who 
identified very much with a leftist politics, while at the same time rejecting uh, both the Burma Socialist Program Party as well as much of what the the Communist Party of Burma um, developed into, um, because in its later years it, it moved very much away from the, the kind of uh, organized workers movement that it was originally connected with. So we have both that in the present, but at the same time we had after two thousand and ten the ILO and international. Uh, organizations were involved in cultivating or working with the newly elected quasi-civilian government to establish labor laws that were more familiar with in Western countries as kind of the sort of quote-unquote responsible unions that aren't ra uh, radical or revolutionary. They're merely there to um, improve working conditions and facilitate these kind of smooth operation of capitalist industry. And that's the kind of labor union that I think the laws that were introduced in 2011 and 2012 were geared to cultivate. So there was one uh, ILO advisor that I, I've sometimes cited who spoke of the 2011 and 2012 labor laws as serving to mitigate strikes. So the aim was to provide channels for workers to address their uh, workplace concerns without going on strikes and therefore for facilitating the smooth and non-disrupted operations of the, the garment and other manufacturing sectors. And in one respect, I think that's there's a, something perhaps commendable to that insofar as it's actually delivering work to workers their, their demands and the, the, what they're eligible for under labor law. But there were Burmese uh, labor activists who were very critical of this, who felt that these laws were in fact geared at restricting workers' ability to disrupt production because when workers are able to disrupt production, that's typically where they're, when and where they're able to actually make significant gains. So these are some of the maybe contradictory or countervailing forces that were at play. On the one hand, this rich leftist history of labor organizing and leftist politics. On the other hand, a very kind of top-down and bureaucratic imposition of, of this formal union uh, uh, legislative bureaucratic structures. So I think I'll... I'll yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's probably worth an entire episode in its, I mean, it's actually probably worth an entire university course in itself to examine the many times in history where we've had uh, ostensibly left-leaning and socially oriented, uh, or even genuinely to an extent, left-leaning and socially oriented political movements become corrupted by uh, authoritarianism or totalitarianism or, or other sort of vestiges that we associate with, with the far right. Uh, and certainly we've seen that have played out multiple times in the Western political sphere. But what I want to ask is, uh, you, you mentioned on multiple occasions uh, peasants, and the labor unions, as I understand them, are, are most often associated with factory workers. So while we're talking about the ideological and, and sort of uh, historical bases of these movements, recently Myanmar uh, marked the Peasants' Day which 
it is a somewhat complicated day, but it does sort of hint back at uh, revolutions or uprisings that were led by farmers against uh, British colonial rule and against their their mistreatment by the the British uh, colonial uh, government. Would you say that the labor union, the labor movement that we see, was in part born out of those uh, agricultural uprisings against colonial power? Okay, excellent question. Um, in the, the colonial period, the, they're usually distinguished between the, the emergence of the, the labor unions and the workers' movements in the oil fields in Macquay and the, the peasant movement, which is often really associated with the early 1930s peasant uprising that's often called the Seasan Rebellion. So in most of the history that I've read, these are treated as somewhat somewhat separate, but they did have connections with some of the individuals involved, but they also, I think, have more of their kind of separate lineages. However, in the 1930s, there were, when there was a lot more explicit uh, thinking about leftist politics, there was a lot more explicit effort at connecting these. So especially in 1938, which was a really important moment that I mentioned before, the oil workers' strike erupted at the start of the year, and then the leftist student activists in Yangon and elsewhere reached out to the workers and connected with them and connected the student movement and the students' uh, strikes and uprising to the workers' movement and then sought to connect it also to the situation of peasants and smallholder farmers around the country. So there was um, an explicit activist effort at, at connection and establishing um, coalitions and connecting these struggles and helping people to see that these were in fact interconnected rather than separate issues. So rather than this having a kind of an originary um, organic connection, although it did at some level, but that the, the politics of coming to see them as connected was very uh, conscious and very um, was driven by activists who had this politics in mind. And I think that's one of the limits of some of the ways in which civil society organizations over the last 10 years had not uh, to the same had not had the same success in connecting rural peasant movements with urban wage worker movements with the student movement so there definitely were activists in Myanmar who were making these connections over the last 10 years but they did not have definitely the same success that the, the what was had by students workers and peasants in connecting these struggles in the colonial period. Um, and they definitely do need to be connected because the one of the pressing issues for workers during the 10 years before the coup was that they were extremely dependent on wages. And part of the issue was that there was this, especially after 1988, a huge uh, process of land dispossession where a lot of smallholders lost their land through military seizures or corporate seizures of land, where the land would just be taken away. And as a result, those who lost their land became radically dependent on the market and radically dependent on wages. So they were then compelled to take on what were often precarious and low-waged jobs in urban areas because they had lost their land through often outright land theft. Uh, in the countryside. So there is this uh, really important connection between the situation and the conditions and the wages of urban wage workers and the the politics 
of peasantry in the countryside. Okay. And so let's, let, let's sort of move the calendar forward now a little bit. So we've gone through independence, we've gone through the socialist period, and we're now looking at uh, what I would sort of tentatively call the faux democracy period, starting in about 2010. So labor unions were uh, illegal, notionally, and they were re-legalized in 2011. So how, how much progress has actually been made through the labor union movement to improve the conditions and the lives of workers in Myanmar since then? There have been immense successes over the last 10 years or the 10 years before the coup by worker organizers, especially factory worker organizers in the industrial zones around uh, Yangon and elsewhere around Mandalay, for example. I mentioned earlier that close to 3,000 workplace unions had been registered in that period, but more immediately, workers were able to make gains not only with wages, but in their ability to uh, play a part in determining the conditions of their workplace. For example, many employers imposed forced overtime so that the employer would say everyone's working overtime and if a worker did not want to do it, the employer might simply lock the factory gates and not let them leave or might threaten to fire them. And so one of the successes of unions over this period was to be able to assert control over issues like this so that workers would not be forced to do overtime or they were able to make gains on very, we might say, simple and immediate things like uh, getting uh, toilets fixed at a factory or improving uh, the conditions of ventilation, not having doors on the factory gates locked while they're in the workplace. And so there was uh, extremely important gains. And aside from the gains of the individual workplace, the gains of the workers to establish collective organizations was extremely important. And this played a part in the post-coup movement. I may be jumping ahead to what could be a future question here, but the, uh, the amount of organizing that went on in the 10 years before the coup in the establishment of formal unions as well as the establishment of informal workplace forms of organizing were a major factor in why these workers were able immediately after the coup on February 6, 2021 to organize a protest in downtown Yangon when 4,000 uh, factory workers, most of whom were young women, some of them as young as 16, went down to downtown Yangon to protest the coup. And the, the reason, one of the major reasons why they were able to do that is because they had already formed these unions and established these organizing uh, networks in the industrial zones over the 10 years leading up to the coup. And so that, uh, that organizing, the organizing successes of industrial workers was a major factor in the February 6th protest movement, which itself catalyzed a lot of the subsequent protest movements in the country after the coup. So I have nothing but praise and respect for those, those factory workers and their organizing. At the same time, having said all that, a lot of the organizing for logistical and other reasons was concentrated 
in areas like the industrial zones around Yangon or Mandalay or Bogot. And so other parts of the country had egregious working conditions with wages well below the legal minimum. And the workers often had no exposure to uh, worker activists or um, exposure to labor law or even knowledge of labor law that they might be able to use as a basis for organizing. And so the, the conditions in some, especially the extractive industries, in the mines, for example, or in the offshore raft fishing industry were absolutely horrendous. And that's definitely an area where, where it was much more difficult for workers to organize. And it was also an, an area or, or an area of the employment that it was much more difficult for um, urban student activists or labor activists to connect with. So there were definitely sentiments for people and labor activists and other activists who wanted to reach out to workers in other sectors in rural areas, but for many logistical and other reasons, it was much more difficult to do that. Whereas in the industrial zones around Yangon, they're relatively close to downtown Yangon. So people can take a, a bus from downtown Yangon and get to the industrial zones in, in under an hour. And so as a result, it was much easier for workers in these industrial zones to travel to downtown Yangon to maybe attend uh, labor workshops or for activists in Yangon to, to travel out to the industrial zones to meet with and to learn from worker activists. And so that sort of uh, connection between worker activists, worker organizers and activists, political activists outside of the workplaces was definitely much more possible at places like the industrial zones around Yangon. And so you, you sort of, I mean, you've touched on a lot of different things that I, I want to delve into. And it's definitely with regard to the role that unions have currently and will continue to have in the restoration of democracy. I, I'm definitely going to, to come back to that. But one thing that I, I just wanted to sort of look into, um, Myanmar is not a particularly, how should I put this, uh, particularly diverse economy a huge part of the economy is extraction, particularly when it comes to petrochemicals, but uh, mining, raw minerals, precious stones, things like this uh, are also considerable parts of the economy. The second largest segment of the economy is, uh, I believe, textile exports. So is there, in your opinion, any sort of difference in the efficacy that labor unions have been allowed to have um, in those major industries that have a lot of government interest and stakeholders versus smaller industries, which the government is not as interested in? Um, well, from my, my experience, most of my research has been with uh, factory workers in the industrial zones around Yangon. And as I understand it, the, the labor unions have been concentrated in these industrial zones, in garment factories or in other factories in the industrial zones, producing often for export. Um, which could be footwear factories or apparel factories or factories producing bags, for example. And as I understand it, that the, the, the success of labor organizing in, for example, mining is much, much lower. Um, there are, I've, I've spoken to um, mine workers who have formed unions, but they, the ones that I spoke with had not um, had, had much success in, in using that, that organizing to, to make advances, but they, were, they had only established it quite recently. So definitely the 
the success of unions in the factories or in uh, some um, the train um, railway operators, for example, was much more successful. I don't know if we can say it's because the government allowed that to happen in the garment sector, but didn't allow it to happen in the mining sector. That That's, I think, uh, an argument could be made for that. Um, because one of the, uh, it appears that one of the motivations for allowing unions and for allowing the union legislation to pass is to be able to attract foreign and particularly Western apparel brands who often have certain kind of, uh, or they try to maintain a certain kind of corporate social responsibility persona. And of course, that can be critiqued a lot about the efficacy of that. But nonetheless, there was a sense in which they did not want to get their brands tarnished by association with blatantly illiberal uh, labor practices. Um, and so before 2010, a lot of brands did not want to source their products from Myanmar. But with the enactment of the, the labor organization law and the dispute resolution law in 2011 and 12, that we had uh, big name corporations like H&M, Zara, Adidas, Gap, and many others who felt that the new space of the legislative space in the country and the, the so-called transition more broadly was such that they could source garments in Myanmar without worrying about any kind of boycott or um, social media um, kind of bad-mouthing of their practices in Myanmar. That's, of course, changed now, and a lot of brands are, are rethinking um, their, their sourcing of, of garments from Myanmar. But nonetheless, after 2011, the new laws, that, that changed. And so I think that a good argument, a strong argument can be made for saying that the government allowed the, uh, a certain amount of union organizing space in order to make the uh, Western investors in particular more, less wary. Not that, of course, these brands want to work with unions, but it was just so egregious before that many of them would have been quickly targeted in, uh, in campaigns. Uh, I'm talking about the years before 2010. Um, and of course, there were sanctions at the time anyway, so it was very difficult. So those new laws also were aimed at getting the sanctions removed. Um, but then there's a lot of the activists said that these, these laws were passed to get sanctions removed and to get investment, but on the ground, there were still a lot of barriers to actually organizing because when workers tried to organize, they confronted all kinds of barriers, not only the intransigence of the township-level conciliation officers, but also in certain cases of the police. Um, and so what was on paper in law was often quite different from what workers experienced in practice. But um, definitely it was relatively, uh, it seems, relatively easier for workers to organize in garment factories producing for export than it was for workers to organize in the mines in Kachin State, for example, or Shan State. So interesting. So on that uh, particular topic of Western influence or, or foreign company influence, I mean, companies like The Gap, for example, have historically come under fire multiple, multiple times for the conditions uh, that their workers are in, particularly uh, in The Gap's case, uh, I, I know particularly in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Now, on the whole then, 
and this is a very complicated question, is the presence of these Western companies a net benefit to Myanmar workers and the Myanmar economy, or would we classify this as exploitation still? Well, it's definitely a, a complicated and multifaceted question because one of the, the challenges is that it's often framed in isolation. So, for example, um, all else being the same, would it not be better for this factory to be here and at least offer these jobs versus not being there? And asked in isolation like that, I think the argument could be made for, well, of course, if that's the only difference, then at least having the option of taking a job would be better than not having that option. However, the expansion of garment factories in Myanmar is tied up with a larger development process that also has a lot of negative impacts that can't be separated from the expansion or proliferation of garment factories. And what I'm uh, suggesting is that the, the, the process of rural development in Myanmar, the process of the, the shift to large-scale plantations and the extractive industries that you mentioned earlier, mining, strip mining, uh, corporate plantations, uh, aquaculture farm, industrial-level aquaculture farms that involved or were preceded by mass land dispossession of rural smallholders. This is part of the same development process that also entails the increase of garment factories in the urban industrial zones. So for that reason, I don't think we can say, or at least ask the question in isolation of, isn't it better to have the garment factories offering these jobs, even if they're low paid, versus not having them? Because asking at that level, I think the answer would be yes, it's better to have the option of going to the job than not. However, if we ask it instead as a, as a multifaceted question that, would you want a development agenda that simultaneously robs people of their rural livelihoods while offering them, in exchange, low-wage, precarious urban wage labor? It seems to me that's the question that needs to be asked. And that's a broader question about the development paradigm or the development agenda that the people of Myanmar want for their country going forward. So that wasn't the question that was asked to people. It was, it was asked in isolation about, here's these factories, would you like to go work in that factory? If you don't want to work in it, that's your choice. However, people were not really given the option of discussing because it was rendered technical in a way that the sort of development agenda for Myanmar is simply a, it's a technical question, not a political question. This is how it was framed and was, in my view, sold to people in Myanmar. It was framed as the way to improve the living standards of the people in the country is to deregulate foreign investment, to massively increase foreign investment, and to increase foreign investment into rural extractive industries, even if this involves pushing people out of the rural areas. And this was legitimated by simultaneously offering, in exchange, the opportunity to work at these low-wage, precarious garment jobs. So it, for that reason, it seems to me that we need to think the urban and the rural together. And what happened in the rural areas, even throughout the, the so-called transition, or what you refer to as the period of faux democracy, was continued land theft. And people who had previously had their land stolen found it very difficult to, to get it back. Of course, there were these famous cases like the Lepidon copper mine, but there were, of course, cases across the country. 
And what happened as a result is that people ended up without land and therefore even more dependent on wage relations. And this exacerbated the out-migration, people leaving the country for wage labor abroad. And of course, people should have the, the, the freedom to go abroad if they want to work. So it's not a matter of saying, uh, should people be allowed to go abroad for wage employment in other countries? But rather, instead, we need to look at the the push factors that are pushing people out of the rural areas. And one of the major push factors was a loss of land that was tied to an expansion of foreign investment as well as domestic investment in rural extractive industries. Okay. And so let's let's focus a little bit on even closer to the to the present. Now, under this 10-year period, you're saying that the unions have made huge advances and and they've had tangible measurable benefits despite what corruption has existed despite what impediments have been put up uh, by self-interested stakeholders, progress has been high. So it seems that there is momentum behind the labor union. Is there a fear on the on the part of the workers that the military coup represents a backtracking of the progress they've made? Yes, definitely. Shortly after the coup last year, I... Uh, a, a research uh, colleague of mine, Burmese colleague of mine, and I did some interviews and with workers uh, about their immediate concerns. And some of them said just that, that they were concerned that as the military took power, it would go back to the situation it was before 2011, where unions would be, if not um, legally criminalized, at, at least in practice, restricted and that employers would take the opportunity provided by military rule to suppress wages and to get rid of union organizers in the workplace and to degrade working conditions. And that was interviews that we did just after the coup, in just uh, two or three days after the coup. Just recently, in the past month, um, my colleague Komong and I wrote an op-ed based on new interviews with workers in the industrial zones around Yangon, and what they said, in fact, confirmed their earlier fears. The employers had taken advantage of the, the situation of martial law that was introduced to suppress wages, to degrade working conditions, and to fire union organizers. So one example is that the official minimum wage in Myanmar is 4,800 chat for an eight-hour workday. Um, and what happened was that uh, initially after the coup, a lot of factories shut down and many workers went back temporarily to their home villages. And then after a couple months, many of them could not survive at their home villages and came back. But when they came back, their employers in many cases put them on instead a uh, what they called a probationary uh, uh, wage of only 3,600 chat, which is the amount of the previous minimum wage. And they were told that they were now no longer salaried employees, but in fact, day rate casual laborers, so that there was no guarantee of work on any given day. And if there was any sort of disagreement, the employer could simply say, you're not coming back tomorrow. So this is a very different situation for many of these workers than it was before the coup, because many of them, especially in workplaces and factories where they had established unions, would be able to contest that sort of arbitrary 
uh, behavior on the part of the management so that if managers tried to do something like that, the entire workforce would go on strike. So for that reason, managers were reluctant to abuse the situation so egregiously. But since the coup, that's, that's very much what's happened. Um, and so many workers are in an extremely precarious situation now and are finding it very difficult to organize. However, there is still organizing going on. So it has not been an absolute elimination of all worker organizing following the coup. And that's also, I think, really important because for people um, who want to be in solidarity with the people of Myanmar who are struggling against military rule, one of the, the spaces or places or people or groups to be in solidarity with are workers in the factories who continue to organize despite the difficulties they face. And there have been a couple victories over the last year of workers who were able to go on strike and make gains despite the conditions of martial law. So what what really strikes me, um, and, and this may just be my cynicism and Western perspective coming in, but the things that you're talking about, um, these probationary wages and just... For, for those sitting at home who um who, who have not done the mathematics here, four thousand eight hundred chat uh at the moment will fetch you approximately two dollars seventy US per day, which even by Myanmar standards is not is not really a surviving wage. Um maybe if you're really holding back and, and you live by yourself. But even then it would be quite difficult. Um so these these low minimum wages, this expectation that there will just be you know some bargaining to make up the gap, these these uh, temporary low payments, and and the shift towards uh, what we are referring to in the West as the gig economy, where you're just working a job when they call you to come in for a job, and if there's no job, you don't come in and you don't get paid. These are things that we're seeing versions of in Western markets, whether it's in the European Union, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Australia, what have you, is. <laughs> I, I know I'm calling for, for conjecture, but is there some sort of uh, information flow between the people who make these sorts of decisions in Myanmar and the people who make the equivalent decisions in Western countries, do you think? Or are they just independently coming to the same conclusions? Um, my, my guess would be that they're independently coming to the same conclusions. It's sort of... Um, it's a, the logical outcome of managers and employers asserting control because employers want well-disciplined labor at the lowest possible price. And that means to just push for the lower, lowest price and to push for casualization and to suppress working conditions and wages. And when that happens, they, and there's no uh, organized worker opposition or other means of countering it, it leads to this casualization. So even in a lot of the kind of European, American, or other Western countries that had significant welfare states in the mid-20th century, before those, those welfare states were established with really high levels of unionization, the workers in those countries also were facing the sort of casual uh, employment conditions that we're seeing increasingly with the gig economy. So it's not so, such an anomaly now, um, but also even during that period of really high unionization in the um, North Atlantic in uh, Western countries in the mid 20th century, there were still significant parts of the population, often uh, racialized minorities, women and migrants who were effectively excluded from these unionized, uh, quote unquote, good uh, unionized jobs. 
so in that sense, it's not such a, a stretch to see the uh, kind of a, a continuity or, or similarity between the, these conditions. Um, okay. So, so we're seeing a very realistic, very tangible fear. Um, with coming from workers, and it's it's it is understandable. I mean, you you mentioned that the minimum wage was raised from three thousand six hundred to four thousand eight hundred, um, and that that appears to be a significant jump, right? It it appears to be, you know, you're you're adding on a third. That's a very generous increase, but of course, the the unions were asking for significantly more than that, and considering the cost of living in a major city like Yangon, they were. So the the fears that the workers are facing. Or, or that they're they're fearing, uh, feeling sorry, are quite realistic and quite tangible. Let's focus on the reaction to this. So, you say that the workers protested on the sixth of February. Yes. What we saw in March, specifically, I believe it was the fourteenth of March, was an incredibly harsh crackdown in Hainbaya, which is an industrial zone in Yangon, where I believe uh, seventy people protesting in the industrial zones were were shot dead uh, by the military. Is, is the military specifically targeting or treating differently uh, protests in industrial zones? Well, that's definitely what it looks like, um, at least for um, February and March of last year after the, after the coup. So workers, uh, industrial workers, factory workers were, as I mentioned, a catalyst on February 6th of the larger protest movement across the country. And they continued after February 6th to conduct protests in downtown Yangon, as well as do strikes at their workplace and uh, conduct protests on the streets of the industrial zones. And so it definitely seems that um, they were subsequently targeted for this. Um, there was on, in late February, I believe it was February 20. Sixth, the, the hunter declared 16 of the country's most prominent trade unions and labor organizations illegal and threatened to arrest labor activists who continued to organize anti-coup activities. Um, and it was after that, as workers continued to organize, that the, the police and military attacked protesting workers in Taipei on March 14. And according to Human Rights Watch, it's, uh, it was at least 65 protesters who were killed. But as you mentioned, it, it's um, likely higher than that in practice. So, and after that moment, the, the junta declared martial law. So it had already been a state of emergency since the coup, but after that, the junta declared martial law over not only Atlantia, but also Shwebida, uh, North Dagon, South Dagon, Dagon Seiken, and North Okalapa. So the conditions of martial law created even more restrictions for worker organizing in the industrial zones. So this definitely seems to me that it's a response to the, the efficacy of these industrial workers in their organizing, in their anti-coup protests, and the, the concern of the junta that this is a, a serious, um, a catalytic constituency in the protest movement, that if the workers are able to organize, they can actually have a significant impact on the military and the military's ability to run the country. Because not only the workers in the garment factories are protesting, but also subsequently um, workers in a whole range of, of sectors. So this includes, uh, of course, the railway workers, workers in 
mines, workers who were producing military equipment at a military-controlled factory went on strike, uh, the logistics workers at the Yangon port went on strike, and that effectively shut down trade at the Yangon port. So this, the capacity of workers to shut the country down through strikes is, as I see it, a, a serious uh, strength and uh, capacity that the workers have that, uh, that politicians who are more prominent don't have. Um, they are often you know, able to make statements and political statements, but they, of course, don't have the capacity because they're not in uh, their kind of location is not such that they can go on strike and shut down the country. But the fact that workers can do this makes them a much more potential threat to the military and thus a, uh, and with us targeted by the military. Mm. And so, let, let's let's talk about why that could be. Uh, so, I mean, it's one thing to look at Myanmar's history and look at uh, workers uh, in industries, look at farmers, and look at students. All three of these categories have successfully, um, for, for different definitions of successfully, have led uh, protests and have led uprisings. And even when they failed, of course, they've, they've galvanized large movements and they, and they continue to be remembered. But let's look a little bit more immediately and a little bit more tangibly. So we know the military, when they were in power, they had a sort of bout of nationalization. And then much of the industries that they control were then reprivatized prior to the what I refer to as the faux democracy as MEHL and MEC. So with MEHL, we have Myanmar Economic Holdings Limited, we have huge uh, range of companies that generate a lot of income and generate a lot of dividends and share payments to, to the military. But what we have in MEC, the Myanmar Economic Corporation, is sort of a, I think we could describe it as a, as a vertical monopoly on a lot of key industries that the, that the military requires, uh, industries that generate, that make concrete or that produce steel and that produce raw materials that military operations depend upon. Is there a possibility here for workers to seriously financially hamstring the military? And is there a possibility for workers to seriously undermine the military's capacity to acquire materiel? Yeah, definitely. Um, the workers in these industries could, if they organize and act collectively and go on strike, they could seriously uh, hamstring, as you said, or or create a threat to the military's ability to manage the country and to operate. Um, of course, they have all the challenges like other workers in the country to organize under military rule, but it's definitely their, their positioning is, is extremely significant for the possibility of them directly threatening the military. And that seems to me extremely important for thinking strategically about how the, the uprising in Myanmar is going forward and the kinds of strategic decisions that people make and areas that are focused on because um, of course there's a lot of people doing incredible uh, engaging in incredible struggles around the entire country but the workers in these industries are strategically located uh, such that they can create a different kind of threat to the military so um, you know going forward that would be a really impressive uh, development. Um, 
but a lot of the the kind of the signi- most significant or like the largest uprising of workers and worker strikes happened in the months immediately after the coup and since then there has been a a slight uh, maybe decline, we could say, for example, in the garment factories, which is what I'm more familiar with, a lot of them have felt compelled to go back to work. Um, they, many of them went on strike initially, but just the, the very fact of needing to support their families and themselves means that they can't continue on strike and not going to work at the factories. So as a result, this has created a, a lot of challenges for the kind of general strike strategy that was initially uh, advanced by many of the workers. But if it were uh, the case that the, the workers at these military-controlled at factories in the military-controlled holding companies um, organized and striked, they could definitely uh, shut down the country, shut down the military. Um, the workers have that capacity in their hands um, in a way that opposition politicians do not. Agreed. And uh, I mean, I suspect I already know the answer to this, but nevertheless, militaries are themselves ultimately very large organized pools of disciplined and trained people. Uh, Is it possible, do you think, for the military to simply walk in and replace the workers? They definitely tried to do this with the hospitals. When the medical staff protested the coup, the military sent in the, the, the medical uh, detachment and said, well, military medics will take over the hospitals. We will run this because we're a military and we are able to do so. Do you think industry could similarly be overtaken by military? Um, again, this, there's a lot of conjecture and speculation here because a lot of what uh, we know of the military is, is from an outsider's perspective. And often there are some uh, analysts, some Burmese analysts who argue that the, the military size has been uh, inflated um, on paper, and this figure of, for example, uh, three and uh, three hundred and fifty thousand uh, people in the military uh, may be simply on paper, whereas in practice it, it may be in fact far lower. Um, but even still, there's if everybody in in the factories under the military-controlled holding companies went on strike, I don't think that the military could step in immediately and replace them. Um, it's not so easy to take a soldier off the front lines who's more used to shooting at civilians than he is, you know, producing uh, cement um, to to switch jobs on on a dime. So I don't I don't think that would be an easy an easy thing to do. The hospitals it, it makes uh, makes sense that there were these military medics who already had medical skills and could be put in a hospital, but to take a soldier off the front lines and to put them in a cement factory. Um, is seems to me a, a different, uh, qualitatively different kind of job transfer. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And so let's let's look at what what the workers can actually do because this is this is at the very heart and essence of unions. Workers can always say, "Well, I'm going to take my ball and go home," but workers have homes. Uh, even under the best of circumstances, workers have to deal with the fact that they don't have an income and they have a family that they have to feed and bills that they have to pay. And unions should, in theory, be collecting union dues partially for the purpose of being able to sustain uh, their workers during these times. Currently, the military is employing a practice of simply 
using eminent domain to seize the property of people that they have declared to be enemies of the state. And I imagine that uh, organized labor unions under a, a time of what the military would call war uh, would definitely qualify for that. So considering the, the very serious ramifications of, of protest, um, do you think the workers are in a position where they can pull that trigger and say, yes, we're just going to leave this site because our conditions are, are terrible and we'll just deal with it? Um, it it's definitely a very, a very difficult question because uh, in the long term, I don't think that's sustainable. But definitely workers demonstrated the capacity and the will and the determination to do just that. Uh, immediately following the coup, people did just walk off the job. Um, but what we saw after a few months um, was that, at least again uh, in the garment and apparel factories and the industrial zones around Yangon that I'm familiar with, that many workers uh, felt compelled to return to work after after several months. So I think it would be uh, it, it would be possible for workers to do that um, in principle to organize collectively and all go on strike at once in a general strike. But in order for that to be sustained, and we saw this in the months after the coup, is that there was a lot of support, not necessarily just by the unions, but also by ordinary people who went out to to cooperate with workers. So there was a way in which the workers are embedded in communities. They're not isolated in their workplaces. They're also part of these communities. And when the general strikes happened after the coup, there were people in the communities who were sharing food and water with striking workers. And that sort of solidarity and and practical solidarity was really crucial for sustaining the general strikes in the months immediately after the coup. So if this was going to be something that workers at the military-controlled holding companies were contemplating doing, that this is something that the the larger community would definitely need to step in and offer uh, support to the workers. Um, And that's what people in Myanmar have shown time and time again, is, is a willingness to do this, to... Um, with a clear sense of solidarity to, to step in and, and cooperate with and support workers who are on strike. So I don't doubt that that's, that's possible. It would just entail or require a lot of organizing on the ground to coordinate this um, and to sustain it over a longer period of time. Absolutely. So let's just sort of as a final topic, let's go even bigger picture here. Let's look at the international community. Of course, most of our audience uh, is international. So one one thing that has stirred up a little bit of controversy in some parts is the return of certain Western companies like, you know, for example, H&M to Myanmar, saying that uh, from their perspective, the reopening of the factories is a morally justifiable move because it allows them to continue placing uh, orders, it allows them therefore to continue funneling money that will be turned into wages for average everyday Myanmar people who are struggling to survive in a very difficult context. So in your opinion, what is the the most ethical and the most uh, effective thing for the West or the outside world to be doing? Is it is it isolating Myanmar and divesting to squeeze the military or is it re-engaging? Okay, definitely a really important question. I would say that the ethical thing to do would be to listen to the workers in Myanmar. That's definitely the the, the first step. Um, rather than 
trying to assess the situation and making a decision about what's appropriate or not appropriate, the, the first step would be to listen to workers in Myanmar. I know that a lot of the unions have come out quite prominently uh, calling for sanctions. Um, I think it's a very difficult question, and I think that um, we do need to be honest that this is it's, it's not an easy question. There are a, a lot of... Um, countervailing forces here and a lot of the workers and their families are highly dependent on these wages. Um, so for me, I don't feel it's ethical for me to say one way or the other that companies uh, should or should not be sourcing their their garments and apparels from Myanmar. Um, what I do think is uh, appropriate for me to do is, is say that we need to listen to the workers in Myanmar. Now, this does mean that we we need to listen to these, these unions that have been calling for sanctions. Um, but um, even still, that there have been unions calling for this, I, I do think we also need to recognize that this, it's, not, it's not that easy. I'm, I do have a lot of concern for many people, uh, many Burmese people working at the factories that I, I, I know very well from my time there, that I am very concerned about their, their livelihoods, their families' livelihoods. Um, and they're in a very difficult situation where many of them are very dependent on these factory wages. So I do think this is a question that requires some humility by outsiders like us um, because of the difficulty of it, but it is ultimately uh, something that's up to the workers in Myanmar themselves. Okay, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it is, it is a very, very complicated issue, but would, so... Would you agree that even as outsiders looking in, can we make the statement that there is both demonstrable good and demonstrable bad in both sanctions and divestment and in re-engagement and reinvestment? Um, yes, if, if demonstrable good and demonstrable bad um, refers to the tangible impact on the workers themselves, yes. Uh, then yes, um, definitely... For many of these workers who are dependent on factory jobs, if those factory jobs are not there, their situation will be worse. Their, their income will be down. This will impact their ability to eat. People may have to reduce their food consumption or simply leave the country. And it, that's already what's happened. Because even though many factories reopened, um, many of them are operating at less than capacity. And over the past year, there's been this huge increase in the number of people in Myanmar trying to get out of the country to work abroad. I'm currently based in Singapore, and I know that there has been an increased demand for uh, young women or women in Myanmar who are seeking to come to Singapore to work as domestic workers, um, but also to Thailand. It's been very difficult because of the border closures due to uh, COVID, but there's a significant demand, as we've seen in the kind of extended queues at the passport office in Myanmar. So there's been a, um, an evident uh, move of many people in Myanmar to leave the country because of the decline in livelihood opportunities, in work opportunities, and in the ability that they have to sustain themselves under the post-coup conditions. So if the factories closed today, this would add to that. However, that being said, many factory workers have come out and said that they support sanctions. They feel that they are willing to, that this is a sacrifice that they have said that they are willing to make um, because they believe it will um, bring the revolution closer 
to uh, success or more quickly. Um, and so that, that position by these factory workers also needs to be respected. Um, and so um, for these reasons, I find this to be an incredibly difficult um, question and difficult topic. No, and I really appreciate you you being so candid and uh, and and giving you know an, an honest insight. Um, so the let's be optimistic for a second, and let's look to the future. Let us presume uh, that uh, that the military uh, dictatorship has fallen and that democracy has been restored. We didn't spend a huge amount of time discussing the many failures of the the reforms and of the uh, labor unions and the systems that have been placed uh you definitely touched on them with uh, with the minimum wages not being passed on with compulsory overtime and all these sorts of things and and uh, oversight just simply not being carried out what would you say would be the key moving forward if and when uh this conflict is over to ensure that the labor union is not only re-established and protected but fixes some of these errors um, well, it, it's the solution is organizing on the ground. It's the, the workers organizing themselves um, in larger, more coordinated movements. Um, it's building on the successes that they had in organizing in the 10 years before the coup, and it's pushing those forward. It's continuing this process of collective worker struggle in the country that workers were already doing, and it's coordinating those, of course, with other struggles, with, with student activists and with rural uh, peasants or smallholders. Um, and in the workplace, that is ultimately, in my view, what delivers on the goods. It's workers being able to organize themselves and to assert their own collective power in the workplace. That's what we saw over the 10 years before the coup is where the gains happened, where workers got the minimum wage, where workers were able to improve their working conditions. It did not occur simply because the government passed a law. Um, workers did not immediately get the benefits of these new laws. It was only when the workers organized themselves. So going forward, if we imagine that the revolution has succeeded, then, well, first, I would hope that there's a uh, government that's more committed to the um, emancipation of workers and smallholders and the majority of people in the country. Um, but uh, as a strategic um, issue, um, I think that we need to um, support as much as possible. We, I mean, uh, outsiders offer support as much as possible to workers um, tangibly uh, in their efforts to organize um, um, because that's ultimately what's going to uh, allow them to uh, make claims for better working conditions and to assert their own uh, control in the workplace. Absolutely. Uh, this has been a this has been both enlightening but also difficult. There, there, there's a lot going on in the country right now, and trying to get to the root of the the intersection between the history of the labor movement and the concerns of workers, and the democracy movement and the military junta is it is it is quite complex. And I want to really thank you for coming on and, and breaking it down so clearly and so effectively. Uh, for me and for our audience so that we have a better understanding of the, the underlying issues. Before we finish, though, I want to ask, do you have any thoughts that you want to leave uh, our audience with going forward? 
Well, I would say that um, pay attention to the ongoing struggles of workers in Myanmar, because just because the military has taken power and has asserted a state of emergency and martial law does not mean that worker organizing and worker struggles have stopped, because they they continue and they, uh, going forward, are establishing, um, however difficult it is under present conditions, they're establishing forms of collective organizing in the workplace. And I think that we really need to uh, recognize their capacity, their determination, and the possibility of this despite these otherwise restrictive conditions. I think it's too easy to get caught up in the more high-profile uh, opposition politics um, and even some of the high-profile armed opposition um, that we might um, forget or um, not recognize, especially for people who are outside of the country, that there is ongoing uh, organizing, ongoing struggles by workers in the country. Stephen, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, this has been this has been very enlightening. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I also enjoyed uh, talking with you, and it's really um, great to get a chance to to elaborate on many of these ideas that are and issues that are really important to me. Now something like 15,000 troops and riot police are estimated to have been on the streets. The government has admitted they killed 10 people, including a Japanese photographer. When the military government realized the unfavorable situation, they used force to suppress the people. We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given. We simply cannot continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous listeners, donors, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated and it helps us to continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform and everything else we do. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. 
You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.